0: Welcome to the Euro intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munschau and with me are Susanne Munshank and Jack Smith. Today we would like to talk about pension reform in France and about deglobalization. Susanne, what's going on in France? We've had a pension reform debate pretty much since the 1990s, if not, if not longer. This seems never to end, does it?
1: No, it doesn't. And I think as long as the French pension system is as generous as, as it is, and as long as it is unsustainable financially, we will have politicians come up with their proposal of how to reform it. Now, in the past, we've seen two parameters that have been successfully changed. One is the retirement age that has been lifted from 60s to 62. And the other one is the length of the contribution. How long do you have to pay in, in order to get your pension? So these are two parameters. And the idea behind that you actually use both parameters is that you make sure that you don't end up with a lot of poor pensioners. So you have the retirement age requirement plus the contribution rate, which is much longer than, for example, in Germany. In Germany, you can retire early. There is a retirement age, but you can retire earlier, but with a lower pension. And that's not possible in France. Pension reform that we're discussing right now is that the retirement age will be extended to 64 and that uh, the contribution rate will be extended to 23 years. So, this is a gradual change. This is not going to happen overnight. So, for the retirement age, we are are looking at 2030 and from the contribution rate, it's going to be achieved by 2027. Uh, There are, of course, as always, exemptions. Um, There are for long careers. So, those people who start at the age of 15 and 16 to work There will also be more negotiations and professionals that have a certain criteria of hardship with the trade unions. We have seen, or yesterday, the first day of the trade unions who came all together unisoner against the reform. For months now, they've been sitting together with the government and trying to talk, although it was clear from the beginning that they wouldn't, they didn't like the idea of increasing the retirement age. They called the reform as unjust and therefore, they went to the streets yesterday, so transport was down. We had uh, schools, I think 40% of teachers were participating and we had some of hospital staff also for the trade unions it was a success because they wanted to have at least a million participants and according to numbers it's 1.12 million so they, they, they did the benchmark and of, that was enough for them to declare another day of another strike. Nice. So the 31st of January will be the next day of strike. So the question now is, will the mobilization, which has so far public support, will it continue? Can it continue with the momentum, with the public backing? And what does it mean for the political play in, in the assembly?
0: Yeah. I mean, the, and the question, another question you addressed in your story this morning was whether the trade unions are actually picking the right battle. I mean, it is an old French thing to, to strike over French pensions. It's sort of the emotional, the classic issue, a bit like nuclear powers in Germany, I guess. Mm. So the yeah. stuff where we all, where we all become very irrational. But it, does it make sense? I mean, here we have their suffering cuts in real incomes. Does it not make more sense for them to strike over wages, for example? And as you mentioned this morning, there are other issues on the horizon that constitute a far bigger threat to them.
1: Yeah, there's an emotional attachment. It's a social achievement that it happened under François Mitterrand, where they negotiated a pension at the age of 60. This was a great achievement for the trade unions then, and continue being path dependent for the trade unions moving forward. And of course, they don't want to relish on this achievement. Uh, so. Now to the reality of an unsustainable pension fund. trade union's argument would be like, why don't you finance it over taxes? After years of whatever it takes from the government, after news that the revenue last year was higher than expected. This all feeds the trade union's sense of injustice here. Uh, Whether it's justified or not, uh, that is a totally different matter, but emotionally that's what they are and that's how they mobilise. I think for the public as such, it is a different matter because at the moment we only have public sector um, workers it's striking. We don't have many from the private sector. Uh, you could say also the momentum of the power of this is also undermined by the today's ability to telework. So we won't have 1995 where people couldn't go to work and where this whole motion was created on the streets and actually went forward as a sort of power battle between public and the government.
2: Yeah, so um, I am one person with... The rare privilege of having lived in France through both the 2019 strikes over the previous attempt at pension reform from Macron, as well as the most recent ones that got going yesterday. And certainly uh, the telework thing does factor into it. I, as I experienced it in December 2019 versus as I experienced it now, I, I do remember it being a much bigger deal in 2019, um, because at the time, remote working wasn't as commonplace a practice in France as it is now. Um, Obviously, there are going to be people who still need to get to wherever their place of work is. But many of those people, if they are say teachers or doctors, might also be on strike, which makes it a moot point. I think as well, what kind of drives it, at least from my own experience in France, is this fear that it could be just the beginning of a slippery slope. And eventually, all manner of things could be cut and driven down to the bone and things like this, right?
1: Yeah, this could be like opening Pandora's box for all the sorts of grievances as well. Fear that this is kind of turning into a gilets jaune momentum. What does it drive? I wrote this morning, and holding on now to an issue they really know well it's the pensions, but what they don't know well is what the future will be like. I mean, we're talking about 2030. It's about two years of their lives that they feel bit deprived, and that's the injustice. But what will be their work environment like, what it will be, whether they will still have work and how this work is in, in which context of the economy this will happen. This is not part of the, the, the whole equation, but this is something where probably far more and more fundamental shifts that have not been actually accounted for. I mean, it's a distribution conflict, we can see that, uh, but between whom? Uh, the, the bigger conflicts that we're going to see is probably if you talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, or Jack, you wrote about it, if the Europeans still really would go against it and match it, the US, it will, would create new distributional conflicts between different industries. It would also shift the whole EU um, logic of the single market, rather than from protecting for the consumers to protecting certain green producers. It has a huge distributional shift in the single market that not only affects France but the whole European economy. And uh, so I think at the moment, they're, they're far bigger fish to fry than just pensions.
2: Yeah. So in, in terms of the, I, I guess, the Gilets jaune movement, it's early days yet. And I don't think we know exactly how the social movement, as I guess you would call it in France, is going to evolve from this point going forward. But at least from yesterday, it feels to me very different from the Gilets jaune. Because it, it felt much more controlled and organized. Whereas the Gilets Jaunes, that was pretty chaotic. It, it almost kind of felt like it popped up out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there was quite a bit more, I guess, unrest and, and everything like that, right? Whereas uh, because the trade unions were leading this and coordinating this, it, it did feel much more. Almost orderly, right? You, you have more than a million people being mobilized, but it didn't have the kind of almost in a way the Gilets Jaunes kind of put the fear in you, right? It didn't feel like it this time around. And, and in terms of the other distributional conflicts, I think the thing about the pension reform is that even though I, I agree we're kind of fighting yesterday's battles today, The reason I think why they've identified this is because an issue that unites French people in terms of their public opinion. If you look at polling, it's almost 70% of French people are against the pension reforms. These are really, really unpopular. I think when you look at the other distributional conflicts, you know, you look at, I don't know, younger people versus older people, renters versus homeowners, highly skilled workers versus low skilled workers, things like this. You're talking about much more divisive social issues than the pension reform which seems to unite most people in that they're not for it.
0: But the pension reform is a problem for young people. Uh, this is a generational question because this is all about giving the the about-to-retire generation a much nicer deal than they would otherwise have. Uh, if, you, if you applied sort of no, normal distributional logic to the, to the situation, because it's the younger people who would have to fund this, and there's no guarantee that they will get the same kind of deal when they get old, because the next generation might just outvote them and again. It is absolutely not clear that this is a good thing. I'm also sort of on another point that, that we're making with Telework. We had we we're here in the UK and we've had rail strikes. And one of the effects of the rail strikes here is that a lot more people work from home. As a result, as a direct result of the rail strikes, we've had rail strikes now pretty much ongoing. Since the beginning of uh, December, this is now almost two months. Um, you know, many days there's no, there are no trains, and so many days they are delayed. People have found ways to, to get around it. It weakens the trade unions when that happens. When there is, you know, we are not in that situation that we were in the 1990s when they could really hold the country to ransom.
2: I, I think I think in the UK the problem now is a different one, which is that the. Uh Everybody else is doing <laughs> the strikes, right? And oh, that's, 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 that's become that's become the problem. It's a general strike in our name. The I mean, government will, I suspect, relent on
1: some of it. Going back to France, I mean, it is astonishing that there is no no talk about the intergenerational conflict that is under, underlying. Uh, I mean, even one of the trade unions advocating that they should uh, increase the contribution rate rather than uh, the retirement rate. So actually shifting the whole thing on to younger people, um, which is kind of astonishing. The other thing is, yes, okay, so we have the pension reform that sort of unites everyone behind one common theme. It's better the devil we know than having something that you don't know and you can't know how to protest. I still think that um, if if you take the mobilization yesterday where the trade unions were leading, in, I was in France when in 1995, the biggest strikes were, and that was a, a totally, it started very organized, but then the Gilets jaunes momentum actually was added to it. There were sort of spontaneous gatherings and metro stations after people realized they're not going to get any train. So there was this sort of a sense that we are all in this together. And that's happened spontaneously after a couple of organized strikes. And that was actually why it was breaking the the back of the the government of Alain Juppé at that time. And
0: that's not the case now.
1: Not yet. You can't say that. I mean, it's like day one. Mm. Uh, You're talking about in 1995, it was three months like that. So that's a totally different attitude. The economic impact, I've seen uh, a study saying that the economic impact was actually more benign than people think, uh, even from the 1995 one. Uh, So it's not really about the economic impact. It's more about the social pressure, how, how much pressure you can take. And this is more of a power battle between the intermediaries like the trade unions and the people and the government. And also given that Emmanuel Macron doesn't have a majority in Parliament. He's still relying on uh, Les Républicains, who at the moment back the current reforms as it is. But if there's too much pressure coming up also their way, uh, there could be shifts in the majority and you might lose and then you might be forced either to pressure it through a Parliament without a vote or you you just have to let go of that.
2: Yeah, um, of course, worth noting for our listeners that Les Républicains in a previous incarnation were the ones who tried to push through the previous pension reform in the 1990s and failed to do that. On the intergenerational aspect, from a personal perspective, I completely agree with you, right? It makes it it would it would make some logical sense for young people to back these reforms because otherwise there'd be no money left in the pension system for when they retire. But and I can say this partly speaking as a young person myself, but also having spoken to a lot of people and read a lot of stuff around this, I, I think it's more there's a sense of cynicism now, and that is maybe what is driving even younger persons' opposition to this as well. like that—the The argument that this is actually good for you as a young person because it means there'll be money left over for when you retire makes less sense if you already have just accepted that you're not going to retire ever anyways, right? And that kind of sense of people being completely jaded with this is, I think, from their standpoint, more what drives it. I also think that this process is a little bit further along in France than it is in the UK. We'll have to see how the rest of the 2020s go to see how it turns out in, in some other countries like the UK or Germany. But in, in France, I think this process is relatively far along. And and of course, you can also see this in who young people actually vote for in France as well. Yeah, I, I don't want to say whether that's right or wrong. I just want to say that that's something I've yeah, observed.
1: I, I want to say, I mean, well, here you're pitching actually the white, white-collar workers against the, the blue-collar workers, right? Because that's probably what they are taking care of, hopefully, for all these exemptions that they are at the moment negotiating. So you could say that if you, we take care of the blue-collar workers, and the white collar workers are already already working longer than the so only 64 years. They're so already more in the realm of 66 and 67 retiring. Uh, so we're already are talking about a reality that is very different from the rules that we're actually at, at the moment discussing. I think that's also fair to say. I mean, we, we, we're we discussing a, a reform, not in real effects, but we're in sort of aspirational effects. And that's also kind of, for me, interesting to see how you can, can get walked up about rules if the de facto reality. Is already a very different one. Mm. Maybe we just talk about a little bit more about and explore a little bit more about the European context I mentioned just uh, briefly today. This the other big uh, elephants in the room. How do we respond to the U.S. uh, Inflation Reduction Act? If we really change the rules in state aid, this is all linked to uh, also the geopolitical risk. Do we all have to now deglobalize and make sure that our production costs uh, at home are low enough in order to compete in world markets? I mean, that definitely affects the labor markets and the pensions you're going to get out. But Wolfgang, you wrote about it extensively. What is your take here?
0: I mean, on deglobalization, sort of a bit of a straw man debate. Uh, when people look at trade data and don't see any fall in trade data and conclude from that sharply that uh, deglobalization isn't happening, that is obviously not the argument. The argument is that there are significant shifts in the quality of the way we organize globalization. There have been big shifts in immigration, not only in the UK, but the, where the regime changed, but also in various European countries where countries are significantly more conservative these days than they were, say, 10 years ago and accepting foreign workers. BC changes the trade agreements that are no longer, they used to be massively investor friendly to the extent. I mean, we've written about this many times that they foresaw these so called, these sort of kangaroo courts, private sector courts that operated completely outside the jurisdiction of a national legal system. That was a feature in the Canada trade deal. From the perspective of the trade negotiators, this was almost a, a non-issue. They didn't think about this and they didn't sort of realize how much opposition that particular issue arose. And there the is a different view now on trade than there was in about 10 years ago. The, the view was that trade is good. The theory of relative competitive. Yeah, comparative advantage. Comparative advantage theory, yes. yes. And the theory is it has dominated Western thinking on, on trade. You know, I've been following this debate in the United States since the 1990s when, the you know, academics came out and said this is actually not true in all circumstances. And you have to actually look and look into sectors, look at, you know, its, its impact on people. The idea that, this is sort of a blanket truth. This is no longer accepted. And we have we have basically now moved on. This is why deglobalization is probably too strong a word. But there is a there's a different quality to this. Trading zones is another factor. We are imposing trade sanctions on China. We are optimizing our supply chains because of the pandemic. We are changing out to make our supply chains less dependent on real-time or you know, just-in-time production flows. All these things come together and produce a different quality to a trade, and then is the technological. Change that reduces the economies of scale, that makes it more viable to produce smaller units in smaller quantity through 3D printing robotics. So you will, you know, a lot of production can be decentralized and delocalized. You know, you no longer need you will in the future, it's a distant future, but you will no longer need these gigafactories, but you know, smaller units become viable. So there is still globalization. I think globalization in data that will continue and that will increase. But the globalization of capital, the globalization of labor, the two big input to industrial production, we have kind of plateaued on that.
2: Yeah, yeah, and to be and to be clear as well, it's it's important to be nuanced And when we talk about deglobalization. You know, none of us are talking about some sort of Juche style. You know, no. like a North Korean uh, world where each state is just for themselves. Um, what, what what it maybe means is that there there are certain considerations and conditionalities being applied to trade. Um, from the perspective of policymakers that wouldn't have been before. And and I think as well, what's also interesting about it is how there are political considerations around this that are almost totally divorced from the economic considerations. And maybe this is kind of a parallel with the pension argument. So um, what one could argue that this really, really globalized era was net-net really, really good for the United States, right? Um, they could keep running these very, very large current account deficits. People could buy lots of lovely cheap things from all these other countries that were you know, now trading in goods with them. And and basically, the US was absorbing this, right? And what absorbing this meant in practical circumstances for lots of Americans is that they had good purchasing power, and they benefited from lots of lovely, nice, cheap things like cheap computers, phones, whatever. However, that was not how many Americans perceived it, right? they were very upset about jobs going overseas and things like that right and you ask yourself well if you'd say had a more protectionist world where you know you kept those jobs and you didn't have this kind of boom in trade that brought all these lovely nice cheap things to you in, in aggregate would you have really been better off in this alternate world potentially not but that doesn't really matter it's how people consider their lives thinking thinking about say the importance of having a steady, reliable job versus the importance of almost your kind of actual economic benefit spread out over a longer period of time.
1: This is part of the myths building, right? Myths of what are the social realities that we are ready to embrace and which ones we absolutely reject, which scenarios we absolutely reject. And for the French, it's the pension things, for the Americans it's...
0: Detroit. Detroit.
1: <laughs> um, so every society has its own no-go zones where they're ready to go to the streets or whether ready to mobilize. Uh, And yet, with all the geopolitical uh, crisis that we had once after the other, we haven't actually seen yet the the whole impact of these supply chain changes and also the sanctions. I mean, I wrote this morning, we we heard the headlines that uh, companies who uh, were active in Russia are packing up their stuff and leaving Russia. But de facto, if you look at the data, there are only um, a few of those who had actually subsidiaries in Russia who actually left. It's 18% of US companies and only 8% of Europeans. So we all talk about concepts and myths, but the reality is sometimes really different. And that's true for the of reform as well. Where this is really heading, we actually have no clue. And I think uh, we have uh, what will happen to China, I mean, there's this big threat to Taiwan. We, we're talking narratives at the moment, political narratives mainly, whether the whole economy will shift forward back and forth with it. That is still yet to be determined. If the the companies don't go with the politics of the war in Ukraine and not really leave in Russia as we all thought they would, and uh, we all understood that this is what they do, we just wonder whether the other assumptions we have about the economy, how they work, how these globalization trends actually work. Uh, what if our assumptions are just uh, political myth mm. building?
2: Yeah, no, completely. Uh, however, I mean. At the, at the end of the day, political myths are often what drive politicians, right? And certainly in the US, I think, you know, you can see whether whether you want to call them myths or lived realities or whatever, they're now converging in a certain direction. And, you know, despite all the differences that politicians from both parties have in the US, there, there are two big, Convergence points, right? One one is that you know, we need to be really serious about China. This is our real threat, right? That that is something that Democrats and Republicans completely agree on. And another one, which I think was something that was more prevalent with the Republicans, but which the Democrats have come around to, is the idea that this big trade deficit is bad. That we need to have more industrial jobs in the United States, and that there needs to be this push for an industrial economy, right? It needs to compete with China. And, it, and we need to compete in industrial
0: policy, right? Well, to do what Germany did, no? Is but this better, a, better industrial it, jobs. Industry. Now
1: we have the U.S. inflation reduction. Mm-hmm. are playing into that. Mm-hmm. So the the good industries now we can be talking about good and bad industries. But how does
0: that play with the Europeans? When the the I mean, there was sort of a nice workshop when the for as long as the Americans had this you know idea that they are just consumers and you know bankers and uh, the british the same and now that everybody is crowding in onto manufacturing so will this is a different different thing the manufacturing industry industrial job is not the same as a service job we know this from from, from industrial economics there's a lot a lot more other jobs hang on it so there, there's a certain logic to germany pursuing industrial strategy where this is failing is that the industries haven't modernized and that it is based on some calculation on energy costs. It's not as though energy costs are driving them out, but they are skeptical that current energy policies is a combination of the energy price shock, phasing out of nuclear power. And in Germany, the, the plant phasing out of coal as well and the readiness and this is what the government is saying if the worst case we'll just switch off the electricity now this is what really gets a number of people <laughs> that the you know there seems to be a tolerance for for power cuts yeah yeah You're
1: obviously as well not going to attract very much investment
0: through yeah. that either
1: but isn't isn't the start of this new industry isn't the start in the educational sector
0: Absolutely, you would have to start there, and this is uh, this is also why we have been, you know, so critical of, for example, the the lack of a Brexit strategy. Because if you if you think you want to shift shift your your business model away from this sort of this sort of trickle down financial model that the UK has uh, to something where people actually create value in in new and modern industries, the first thing you have to do is you have to get rid of this ridiculous A level system and you know modernize the subjects, the content of the stuff you're teaching. Most of the stuff is totally antiquated in this country. I mean, the universities are offering courses that are absolutely not compatible with that kind of world mm-hmm. in which the UK could actually achieve higher productivity growth. Completely right. It has to start with education. You have to do these things at the same time because the educational system will take take a few years until they generate.
2: Yeah I mean I mean I think I think another point is how you build an education system that allows people to be relatively adaptable in their skill set throughout their careers. I think mm-hmm. the difficulty as well and this is something that I think we're increasingly seeing in labor markets and there and the the way that it's working with tightness and misallocation is when you have a 40 plus year career but if industries start to change on a decade by decade basis and they do that really quickly how do you get people to adapt to that? Mm-hmm. And so I think as well within the system say, going from early years all the way through to your university studies, a priority should be, well, I, I think it's very difficult to say, oh, we're going to give people the skills that they need for the jobs that exist now, because, it's, or even the jobs that exist in the future, because things are changing so quickly. I think what you need to say is, well, how do we kind of give people the right foundational skill set? They can go and pick up new things as they go through their careers.
1: Mm-hmm. I think vocational training will also have sort of some role to play. Transferable skills as well. What are the transferable skills? I think all these new traineeships, uh, they have to first to be defined and what is actually transferable and what 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 are the, the necessary starting points to give them the confidence to go, go into these professions and then go from there.
0: I think we can, yeah. can pretty much conclude from this that we all have massive adjustment problems ahead. I mean, the French, the French strikes are a very evident one. We see we see big problems in the UK. We see big problems in Germany, a country that sticks to an old model and has some difficulties getting rid of that. The Chinese have a huge problem getting away from the investment-based economic growth model to a consumption-based model, which is a, whilst the US seems to be, as oh, always, well, yeah. uh, uh, the the one that seems to have the least problems and 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 getting out of crisis faster than ever. So this world is still working in their favor, but there are other problems the, U- the US is facing on mostly on the political side.
2: I think as well, if you think about it, trying to transition from a consumption-based model to a production-based model is also not going to be uh, a piece of cake either. Yeah.
0: No, it might be easier to go the other way around, what the Chinese do. I think they probably they need to kind of arbitrage a little bit. We may have to do this in Europe too. This is not just a, a matter that, that one country can do by itself. On that note, thank you for listening and until next week.